Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Wednesday's episode of Scripture Uncovered. We left off on Monday with Silas and Timothy staying behind in Berea, while Paul and presumably Luke continued on to Athens. And that's where we put in today at Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, we need to pause on that for a moment. Saul of Tarsus was an enormously well-educated man. He was a Roman citizen. He knew classical rhetoric. He knew classical literature. Saul of Tarsus, St. Paul, had been in many Gentile cities. So it's not like he went to Athens and was just, oh, the horror, all these pagan temples. He had seen pagan temples everywhere he went. The pa- Diana, the goddess Diana, was the patron goddess of Asia Minor. Every town Paul would go to would have a, a temple to Diana. So he's not horrified, but he just wonders, with all these other gods, where do these people fit in God's plan? How do I get a message to them when the environment, the culture, is so overwhelmingly pagan? It wasn't just a temple to the goddess Diana. There was a temple to Athena, a temple to all the Greek gods. This is Athens, after all. So, how would he proceed? Well, as usual, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So, he went about his business as he normally did, still concerned, how do I get the message, the gospel message, into this culture and this place? Well, as he's speaking, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. So as he's speaking to the crowd in the marketplace, we had some very well-educated Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who had their own perspective on things, and they said, no, wait just a moment, and they began a debate, an argument or a debate. Some of them ask, what's this babbler trying to say? What he was saying made no sense to them. And literally the picture here is what, what is this seed picker trying to say? Which gives us the image of Paul speaking and nodding his head uh, and pointing as he does, like a chicken picking seed. What's this seed picker trying to say? Others remark, well, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Because remember in Athens, There was not a single Christian in Athens. Paul always opened new territory. They had no idea about the Lord Jesus Christ, no idea about the Jewish Messiah. He seems to be advocating some some other strange God. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. 
Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? So these were not people, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, who simply dismissed Paul. They just didn't understand at all what he was saying. So they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. I think of the Areopagus as the faculty club of Athens. And they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? We'd be very interested in hearing your ideas because they're strange indeed to our ears and we want to know more about them, what they mean. Now, parenthetically, Luke adds, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas, which is why I call the Areopagus the Faculty Club of Athens. I was a member and still am a member of the Faculty Club at UCLA, and one of the things I truly miss about being retired from UCLA and now living in San Diego is my daily lunches at the Faculty Club. I love that, teaching my classes in the morning, uh, going to the faculty club for lunch. But indeed, all the faculty who ate lunch there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And I have to confess, I enjoyed that. And I miss it. Well, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, now, no, notice this is not a planned speech. This is totally ad hoc, off the cuff. Paul said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. So once again, Paul did not come to Athens, walk around horrified at all the pagan temples. No, he looked at them closely. He toured them. He walked through them. He read the inscriptions. He was very interested. And he noticed an altar to an unknown God. Now that's his hook. That's his opening here at the Areopagus. I'm going to proclaim to you who that unknown God is. And he continues. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. The God I'm speaking of is creator of heaven and earth, creator of the universe, God Almighty, who doesn't need anything from us, and he certainly doesn't live in a box. From one man, Adam, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Now God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Why, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. 
one of your own poets, the Cretan poet Epimenides, who lived around 600 BC. Now get that. Paul can quote from memory a 6th century BC Cretan poet Epimenides from memory. I told you he knew his classical literature. Therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. God winked at such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. So here's Paul's lead up. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Well, Paul was doing great until that statement. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some sneered, others said, oh, we'd like to hear more about this later on, perhaps. And at that, Paul left the Areopagus. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and a young woman named Damaris, and a handful of others. Well, I have a story to go with that one as well. Paul at the Areopagus, the faculty club of Athens. When I was a young PhD student at UCLA, in the English department, there was a group of select faculty members from all over campus who were members of the Neo-Areopagus. Now, a little background. One of the great professors at UCLA in the English department was Jimmy Phillips, a wonderful man. I never met him personally. He passed away before I got there as a graduate student. But Jimmy Phillips was, by all accounts, a wonderful man and a classicist. And he started the Neo-Areopagus, where select faculty and some others would come together for a lovely dinner at his home, and they would have a guest speaker after dinner and talk about ideas, as we have here at the Areopagus in Athens. Well, Jimmy Phillips' wife, Geneva Phillips, Again, a wonderful woman. I knew Geneva for a long time, and, and she was just an, an absolute, marvelous, true lady. And they had a beautiful home. Now she lived there as a widow. But she continued the tradition of the Neo-Areopagus. Well, one day, when I went to the department office to check my mailbox, I, I had an envelope, a nice envelope, and I opened it, and it was an invitation from Geneva Phillips to attend the meeting of the Areopagus at her home. And she asked if I would be the speaker. Well, I'll be darned. I was not a brand new PhD student, but I was certainly not of that caliber. At that time, I, I had begun my exploration of the Bible as a literary work. 
And there was a journal, an experimental journal, called Samia, that uh, it was really on the cutting edge of literary criticism of scripture. And I, I was very much involved in that. And I was developing my ideas about scripture. And uh, the, my, my four foundational principles were the Bible is rooted in geography, it emerges from history, in its final finished form, it's a unified literary work, and the Bible makes a unique claim to be the Word of God. So I thought, all right, I'll do my talk on those four foundational principles. So I worked it all up. I had a map and, and material with me, and we had a wonderful dinner, and the conversation was wonderful, and then it came time to speak. And I stood up. They had a nice lectern there in the room, and, uh, and I welcomed everyone and thanked them for inviting me, and... And I said, one of, the, one of the most important books I've read on Scripture uh, laid out four principles. The most important one was the Bible is a unified literary work. Northrop Frye, The Great Code. That really put me on the track. So I talked about Northrop Frye's The Great Code, and then I said, I'd like to present the four foundational principles that I see as a way of understanding the Bible as a literary work. So I said, the Bible emerges, is rooted in geography. The land is important. The land of Israel is a land bridge linking Europe, Asia, and Africa. And all the events in Scripture take place within that land bridge and trajectories out from it. It's the epicenter of the story. And I showed maps of the land of Israel, I showed photographs, and we talked all about the, the geography. Number two, the Bible emerges from history. These are real people with real events in real times in real places. And if we don't understand the history, the chronology, the characters, the figures, the historical events, we will never understand Scripture. And I went all through that. And then the Bible, although written by many different people, passing through the hands of editors and redactors and so on, and the whole canon of Scripture coming together over a very long period of time, the Bible as we have it between two covers, Genesis through Revelation, is a unified literary work. The curtain rises in Genesis, it falls in Revelation. The main character is God, the conflict is sin, the theme is redemption. And between Genesis and Revelation, there is a linear narrative, a chronologically linear narrative with recapitulation. And I went through all of that, and everyone's listening very intently, and I felt so good. I was a graduate student talking to all these senior faculty people, and they were nodding in agreement, smiling. And then I said, Principle number four, unlike other works of literature, unlike the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Divine Comedy, unlike those major works of literature, the Bible makes a unique claim. The Bible is the Word of God. Now, I was going to develop that 
in a very unique and special way. But as soon as I said, the Bible is the word of God, I heard someone snicker. And I saw eyes being cast to the ceiling. And very quickly, a very uncomfortable Geneva Phillips stood up and, and said to me, taking my shoulder, that that was such an interesting talk. We would love to have you back at another time. And I was ushered back to my table. I know exactly how St. Paul felt at the Areopagus because I felt the same way at the Neo-Areopagus. Now, let me end by saying that Jimmy Phillips, Geneva Phillips, and those people who were at the dinner, they were wonderful people. And many of them were my colleagues for upwards of 30 years. But I remember that dinner and that talk so vividly. And every time I read about Paul in Athens at the Areopagus, I think of that talk. Well, we move on to chapter 18. Paul leaves Athens and he heads toward Corinth. And that's where we'll put in on Friday. Thanks, gang. I'll see you back then. Blessings to all of you. Bye-bye now. <laughs>